Section 10 of A Half Century of Conflict. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Half Century of Conflict by Francis Parkman. Chapter 7, Part 1, 1704 to 1710. Acadia Changes Hands. When war parties from Canada struck the English borders, reprisal was difficult against those who had provoked it. Canada was made almost inaccessible by a hundred leagues of pathless forest, prowled by her Indian allies, who were sure to give the alarm of an approaching foe, while, on the other hand, the New Englanders could easily reach Acadia by their familiar element, the sea, and hence that unfortunate colony often made vicarious atonement for the sins of her northern sister. It was from French privateers and fishing vessels on the Acadian seas that Massachusetts drew most of the prisoners whom she exchanged for her own people held captive in Canada. Major Benjamin Church, the noted Indian fighter of King Philip's War, was at Tiverton in Rhode Island when he heard of Hurtle de Rouville's attack on Deerfield. Boiling with rage, he mounted his horse and rode to Boston to propose a stroke of retaliation. Church was energetic, impetuous, and bull-headed, sixty-five years old and grown so fat that when pushing through the woods on the trail of Indians, he kept a stout sergeant by him to hoist him over fallen trees. Governor Dudley approved his scheme, and appointed him to command the expedition, with the rank of colonel. Church repaired to his native Duxbury, and here, as well as in Plymouth and other neighbouring settlements, the militia were called out, and the veteran readily persuaded a sufficient number to volunteer under him. With the Indians of Cape Cod he found more difficulty, they being, as his son observes, a people that needed much treating, especially with drink. At last, however, some of them were induced to join him. Church now returned to Boston, and begged that an attack on Port Royal might be included in his instructions, which was refused, on the ground that a plan to that effect had been laid before the Queen, and nothing could be done till her answer was received. The Governor's enemy seized the occasion to say that he wished Port Royal to remain French, in order to make money by trading with it. The whole force, including Indians and sailors, amounted to about 700 men. They sailed to Matinicus in brigs and sloops, the province galley, and two British frigates. From Matinicus most of the sailing vessels were sent to Mount Desert to wait orders, while the main body rowed eastward in whaleboats. Touching at St. Castin's Fort, where the town of Castine now stands, they killed or captured everybody they found there. Receiving false information that there was a large war party on the west side of Passamacoddy Bay, they hastened to the place, reached it in the night, and pushed into the woods in hope of surprising the enemy. The movement was difficult, and Church's men, being little better than a mob, disregarded his commands and fell into disorder. He raged and stormed, and presently, in the darkness and confusion, descrying a hut or cabin on the farther side of a small brook, with a crowd gathered about it, he demanded what was the matter, and was told that there were Frenchmen inside who would not come out. "'Then knock them in the head!' shouted the choleric old man, and he was obeyed. It was said that the victims belonged to a party of Canadians captured just before, under a promise of life. Afterwards, when Church returned to Boston, there was an outcry of indignation against him for this butchery. In any case, however, he could have known nothing of the alleged promise of quarter. To hunt Indians with an endless forest behind them was like chasing shadows. The Acadians were sure a game. Church sailed with a part of his force up the Bay of Fundy, 
and landed at Grand Pré, a place destined to a dismal notoriety half a century later. The inhabitants of this and the neighbouring settlements made some slight resistance, and killed a lieutenant named Baker and one soldier, after which they fled, when Church, first causing the houses to be examined to make sure that nobody was left in them, ordered them to be set on fire. The dikes were then broken, and the tide let in upon the growing crops. In spite of these harsh proceedings, he fell far short in his retaliation for the barbarities at Deerfield, since he restrained his Indians and permitted no woman or child to be hurt, at the same time telling his prisoners that if any other New England village were treated as Deerfield had been, he would come back with a thousand Indians and leave them free to do what they pleased. With this bluster, he left the unfortunate peasants in the extremity of terror, after carrying off as many of them as were needed for purposes of exchange. A small detachment was sent to Berbassin, where it committed similar havoc. Church now steered for Port Royal, which he had been forbidden to attack. The two frigates and the transports had by this time rejoined him, and in spite of Dudley's orders to make no attempt on the French fort, the British and provincial officers met in the council to consider whether to do so. With one voice they decided in the negative, since they had only four hundred men available for landing, while the French garrison was no doubt much stronger, having had ample time to call the inhabitants to its aid. Church, therefore, after trying the virtue of a bombastic summons to surrender, and destroying a few houses, sailed back to Boston. It was a miserable retaliation for a barbarous outrage, as the guilty were out of reach, the invaders turned their ire on the innocent. If Port Royal in French hands was a source of illicit gain to some persons in Boston, it was also an occasion of loss by the privateers and corsairs it sent out to prey on trading and fishing vessels, while at the same time it was a standing menace as the possible naval base for one of those armaments against the New England capital which were often threatened, though never carried into effect. Hence, in 1707, the New England colonists made, in their bungling way, a serious attempt to get possession of it. Dudley's enemies raised the old cry that at heart he wished Port Royal to remain French, and was only forced by popular clamour to countenance an attack upon it. The charge seems a malicious slander. Early in March he proposed the enterprise to the general court, and the question being referred to a committee, they reported that a thousand soldiers should be raised, vessels impressed, and Her Majesty's frigate Detford, with the province gallery, employed to convoy them. An act was passed accordingly. Two regiments were soon afoot, one uniformed in red and the other in blue, one commanded by Colonel Francis Wainwright and the other by Colonel Winthrop Hilton. Rhode Island sent eighty more men, and New Hampshire sixty, while Connecticut would do nothing. The expedition sailed on the 13th of May, and included 1,076 soldiers, with about 450 sailors. The soldiers were nearly all volunteers from the rural militia, and their training and discipline were such as they had acquired in the uncouth frolics and plentiful New England rum of the periodical muster days. There chanced to be one officer who knew more or less of the work in hand. This was the English engineer Redknapp, sent out to look after the fortifications of New York and New England. The commander-in-chief was Colonel John March of Newbury, who had popular qualities, had seen frontier service, and was personally brave, but totally unfit for his present position. Most of the officers were civilians from country towns, Ipswich, Topsfield, Lynn, Salem, Dorchester, Taunton, or Weymouth. In the province gallery went, as secretary of the expedition, that intelligent youth, William Dudley, son of the governor. New England has been blamed for not employing trained officers to command her levies, but with the exception of Redknapp, and possibly of Captain Samuel Vetch, there were none in the country, nor were they wanted. 
In their stubborn and jealous independence, the sons of the Puritans would have resented their presence. The provincial officers were, without exception, civilians. British regular officers, good, bad, or indifferent, were apt to put on airs of superiority, which galled the democratic susceptibilities of the natives, who, rather than endure a standing military force imposed by the mother country, preferred to suffer, if they must, and fight their own battles in their own crude way. Even for irregular warfare they were at a disadvantage. Canadian feudalism developed good partisan leaders, which was rarely the case with New England democracy. Colonel John March was a tyro set over a crowd of ploughboys, fishermen, and mechanics, officered by tradesmen, farmers, blacksmiths, village magnates, and deacons of the church, for the characters of deacon and militia officer were often joined in one. These improvised soldiers commonly did well in small numbers, and very ill in large ones. Early in June, the expedition sailed into Port Royal Basin, and Lieutenant Colonel Appleton, with 350 men, landed on the North Shore, four or five miles below the fort, marched up to the mouth of the Annapolis, and was there met by an ambushed body of French, who, being outnumbered, presently took to their boats and retreated to the fort. Meanwhile, March, with 750 men, landed on the south shore and pushed out to the meadows of Allen's River, which they were crossing in battle array when a fire blazed out upon them from a bushy hill on the farther bank, where about 200 French lay in ambush under Subercase, the governor. March and his men crossed the stream, and after a skirmish that did little harm to either side, the French gave way. The English then advanced to a hill known as the Lion Rampant, within cannon shot of the fort, and here began to entrench themselves, stretching their lines right and left towards the Annapolis on one hand, and Allen's River on the other, so as to form a semicircle before the fort, where all the inhabitants had by this time taken refuge. Soon all was confusion in the New England camp, the consequence of March's incapacity for a large command, and the greenness and ignorance of both himself and his subordinates. There were conflicting opinions, wranglings, and disputes. The men, losing all confidence in their officers, became unmanageable. The devil was at work among us, writes one of those present. The engineer, Redknapp, the only one of them who knew anything of the work in hand, began to mark out the batteries, but he soon lost temper and declared that it was not for him to venture his reputation with such ungovernable and undisciplined men and inconstant officers. He refused to bring up the cannon, saying that it could not be done under the fire of the fort, and the naval captains were of the same opinion. One of the chaplains, Reverend John Bard, being of a martial turn and full of zeal, took it upon himself to make a plan of the fort, and to that end, after providing himself with pen, ink, paper, and a horse pistol, took his seat at a convenient spot, but his task was scarcely begun when it was ended by a cannonball that struck the ground beside him, peppered him with gravel, and caused his prompt retreat. French deserters reported that there were five hundred men in the fort, with forty-two heavy cannon, and that four or five hundred more were expected every day. This increased the general bewilderment of the besiegers. There was a council of war. Redknapp declared that it would be useless to persist, and after hot debate and contradiction, it was resolved to decamp. Three days after, there was another council, which voted to bring up the cannon and open fire, in spite of Redknapp and the naval captains but in the next evening a third council resolved again to raise the siege as hopeless. This disgusted the rank and file, who were a little soothed by an order to destroy the storehouse and other buildings outside the fort, and, ill-led as they were, they did the work thoroughly. Never did men act more boldly, says the witness before quoted. They threatened the enemy to his nose, and would have taken the fort if the officers had shown any spirit. They found it hard to bring them off. 
at the end we broke up with the confusion of babel and went about our business like fools the baffled invaders sailed crestfallen to casco bay and a vessel was sent to carry news of the miscarriage to dudley who vexed and incensed ordered another attempt march was in a state of helpless indecision increased by a bad cold but the governor would not recall him and chose instead the lamentable expedient of sending three members of the provincial council to advise and direct him two of them had commissions in the militia the third john leverett was a learned bachelor of divinity formerly a tutor in harvard college and soon after its president capable no doubt of preaching calvinistic sermons to the students but totally unfit to command men or conduct a siege young william dudley was writing meanwhile to his father how jealousies and quarrels were rife among the officers how their conduct bred disorder and desertion among the soldiers and how colonel march and the others behaved as if they had nothing to do but make themselves popular many of the officers seem in fact to have been small politicians in search of notoriety with an eye to votes or appointments captain stuckley of the british frigate wrote to the governor in great discontent about the nonsensical malice of lieutenant colonel appleton and adds i don't see what good i can do by lying here where i am almost murdered by mosquitoes the three commissioners came at last with the reinforcement of another frigate and a hundred recruits which did not supply losses as the soldiers had deserted by scores in great ill humour the expedition sailed back to port royal where it was found that reinforcements had also reached the french including a strongly manned privateer from martinique the new england men landed and there was some sharp skirmishing in an orchard chaplain barnard took part in the fray a shot brushed my wig he says but i was mercifully preserved we soon drove them out of the orchard killed a few of them desperately wounded the privateer captain and after that we all embarked and returned to boston as fast as we could this summary statement is imperfect for there was a good deal of skirmishing from the thirteenth august to the twentieth when the invaders sailed for home march was hooted as he walked boston streets and children ran after him crying wooden sword there was an attempt at a court-martial but so many officers were accused on one ground or another that hardly enough were left to try them and the matter was dropped with one remarkable exception the new england militia reaped scant laurels on their various expeditions eastward but of all their shortcomings this was the most discreditable meanwhile events worthy of note were passing in newfoundland that island was divided between the two conflicting powers the chief station of the french being at placentia and that of the english at st john in january seventeen o five subercase who soon after became the governor of acadia marched with four hundred and fifty soldiers canadians and buccaneers aided by a band of indians against st john a fishing village defended by two forts the smaller known as the castle held by twelve men and the larger called fort william by forty men under captain moody the latter was attacked by the french who were beaten off on which they burned the unprotected houses and fishing huts with a brutality equal to that of church in acadia and followed up the exploit by destroying the hamlet at fairyland and all the defenceless hovels and fish stages along the shore towards trinity bay and bonavista four years later the sieur de saint Auverde, a nephew of brulan late governor at port royal struck a more creditable blow he set out from placentia on the thirteenth of december seventeen o eight with one hundred and sixty four men and on the first of january approached fort william two hours before day found the gate leading to the covered way open entered with a band of volunteers rapidly crossed the ditch planted ladders against the wall and leaped into the fort then as he declares garrisoned by a hundred men 
His main body followed close. The English were taken unawares. Their commander, who showed great courage, was struck down by three shots, and after some sharp fighting the palace was in the hands of the assailants. The small fort at the mouth of the harbour capitulated on the second day, and the palisaded village of the inhabitants, which, if we are to believe saint Ovid, contained nearly six hundred men, made little resistance. St. John became for the moment a French possession, but Costabel, governor at Placentia, despaired of holding it, and it was abandoned in the following summer. About this time a scheme was formed for the permanent riddance of New England from war parties by the conquest of Canada. The prime mover in it was Samuel Vetch, whom we have seen as an emissary to Quebec for the exchange of prisoners, and also as one of the notables fine for illicit trade with the French. He came of a respectable Scotch family. His grandfather, his father, three of his uncles, and one of his brothers were covenanting ministers who had suffered some persecution under Charles the Second. He himself was destined for the ministry, but his inclinations being in no way clerical, he and his brother William got commissions in the army, and took an active part in the war that ended with the Peace of Ryswick. In the next year, the two brothers sailed for the Isthmus of Panama, as captains in the band of adventurers embarked in the disastrous enterprise known as the Darien Scheme. William Vetch died at sea, and Samuel repaired to New York, where he married a daughter of Robert Livingston, one of the chief men of the colony, and engaged largely in the Canadian trade. From New York he went to Boston, where we find him when the war of the Spanish succession began. During his several visits to Canada, he had carefully studied the St. Lawrence and its shores, and boasted that he knew them better than the Canadians themselves. He was impetuous, sanguine, energetic, and headstrong, astute withal, and full of ambition. A more vigorous agent for the execution of the proposed plan of conquest could not have been desired. The General Court of Massachusetts, contrary to its instinct and its past practice, resolved, in view of the greatness of the stake, to ask this time for help from the mother country and Vetch sailed for England, bearing an address to the Queen, begging for an armament to aid in the reduction of Canada and Acadia. The scheme waxed broader yet in the ardent brain of the agent. He proposed to add Newfoundland to the other conquests, and when all was done in the north, to sail to the Gulf of Mexico and wrest Pensacola from the Spaniards, by which means, he writes, Her Majesty shall be sole empress of the vast North American continent. The idea was less visionary than it seems. Energy, helped by reasonable good luck, might easily have made it a reality, so far as concerned the possessions of France. The court granted all that Vetch asked. On the 11th of March he sailed from America, fully empowered to carry his plans into execution, and with the assurance that when Canada was conquered, he should be its governor. A squadron bearing five regiments of regular troops was promised. The colonies were to muster their forces in all haste. New York was directed to furnish 800 men, New Jersey 200, Pennsylvania 150, and Connecticut 350, the whole to be at Albany by the middle of May, and to advance on Montreal by way of Wood Creek and Lake Champlain, as soon as they could hear that the squadron had reached Boston. Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Rhode Island were to furnish 1,200 men to join the regulars in attacking Quebec by way of the St. Lawrence. Vetch sailed for Portsmouth in the ship Dragon, accompanied by Colonel Francis Nicholson, late Lieutenant Governor of New York, who was to take an important part in the enterprise. The squadron with the five regiments was to follow without delay. The weather was bad, and the Dragon, beating for five weeks against headwinds, did not enter Boston Harbor till the evening of the 28th of April. Vetch, chafing with impatience, for every moment was precious, sent off expresses that same night to carry the Queen's letters to the governors of Rhode Island, Connecticut, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. 
Dudley and his council met the next morning, and to them Vetch delivered the royal message, which was received, he says, with a dutiful obedience becoming good subjects, and all the marks of joy and thankfulness. Vetch, Nicholson, and the Massachusetts authorities quickly arranged their plans. An embargo was made on the shipping, provision was made for raising men and supplies and providing transportation. When all was in train, the two emissaries hired a sloop for New York, and touching by the way at Rhode Island, found it in the throes of the annual election of governor. Yet every warlike preparation was already made, and Vetch and his companions sailed at once for New Haven to meet Stoutenstall, the newly elected governor of Connecticut. Here, too, all was ready, and the envoys, well pleased, continued their voyage to New York, which they reached on the 18th of May. The governor, Lord Lovelace, had lately died, and Colonel Ingoldsby, the lieutenant governor, acted in his place. The assembly was in session, and being summoned to the council chamber, the members were addressed by Vetch and Nicholson with excellent effect. In accepting the plan of conquest, New York completely changed front. She had thus far stood neutral, leaving her neighbours to defend themselves, and carrying on an active trade with the French and their red allies. Still, it was in her interest that Canada should become English, thus throwing open to her the trade of the Western tribes, and the promises of aid from England made the prospects of the campaign so flattering that she threw herself into the enterprise, though not without voices of protest, for while the frontier farmers and some prominent citizens like Peter Schuyler thought that the time for action had come, the Albany traders and their allies, who fattened on Canadian beaver, were still for peace at any price. End of section 10